This is Your Bird Story, a broadcast of bird stories told by everyday people about their interactions and relationships with wild birds in cities. I'm your host, Georgia Silvera Simeons. Hello, Melissa, and welcome to Your Bird Story. Hello, thank you for having me. Please introduce yourselves to the listeners. I'm Melissa Breyer, and I live in New York City. And I am a writer, editor, photographer, and bird rescuer. Okay, and we will definitely get into the rescuer bit of your identity, but I wanted to start off by asking about your nature experiences as a young person in your childhood. So I grew up in LA, and I think most people who don't know LA think of it as just all urban sprawl, which it is a lot of urban sprawl, but there's a lot of nature there too. So my mom's house was near the mountains, the foothills of the National Angeles Crest Forest, and my dad's house was at the beach. So there was definitely a lot of outdoor time also in Southern California. People just are outside all the time. But we did a lot of camping, a lot of road trips to national parks, and nature is pretty easily accessible for my family, it was. So a lot of nature all the time. It's not like I lived in, you know, a rainforest or someplace that was very lush and full of, you know, amazing creatures. Definitely a lot of interesting nature happening in Southern California. Did you as a child focus on any one particular aspect of that nature? Were you a child that loved flowers or insects or birds? All of the above. I was very, very empathetic and passionate about animals from a young age. I stopped eating meat when I was 12, because it made me too sad. I loved flowers. I was always trying to create a little garden on a dusty patch of our backyard. I loved insects. I was really kind of a strange nature child in the city. And can you tell us about what sparked your interest in birds in New York City? Yeah, well, you know, being nature deprived in the city, as many of us are, I really appreciate the urban wildlife. So I've always just been obsessed with squirrels and pigeons and the other birds and and creatures here. It wasn't until I was very fortunate to be able to do a bird listening walk with David Sibley in Central Park, maybe eight years ago. It was for work. There were some journalists that were going out with him on the launch of the Song Sleuth app. And I had no idea what went on in Central Park with birds until that time over 200 species and a hotspot for migrants. So at that point, I was suddenly very aware of the incredible bird life in New York City. Well, I should also add that I knew that there was a problem with window collisions, but I didn't realize the extent of it. So I think it was around 2019, 2020, right before the pandemic, I saw a tweet that was an array of dead birds that had collided with windows. Somebody had collected their daily collections and it just, it shook me and I couldn't believe it. I've always wanted to work with wildlife, but the opportunities in the city for working with wildlife are very skim, very lean. So I found out about Audubon's Project Safe Flight and 
just went to the page, looked at it, and it was just an immediate hard yes. I signed up for the the next informational session there was, and I've been kind of obsessively doing it ever since. I want to continue on this thread of the Project Safe Flight, and I have seen your Twitter timeline, and I find it incredibly sad, as I know do many who view it. And I'm curious if you would share with us your emotional response to that volunteer work. Yeah, it is a stew of sorrow and fire. You know, it's so depressing and enraging at the same time. And to hold both of those emotions at once together, kind of heartbreak and anger is a very kind of dynamic emotional state to be in. It's really sad. It's really hard work. It's heartbreaking, but it's also very angering. It's enraging that it's been a problem for so long and it's being addressed so slowly. But it's also a feeling of just being able to hopefully create some change by bringing more attention to it and just making sure that these birds aren't dying in vain. Each one is that I find, I, I photograph, I take down all the data for it. It's then given, eventually given to a research institution or a museum. So these birds that I find are not dying in vain. They become a data point, they become a photograph, and they become part of a research collection. So it's not... <laughs> It's not a bright side, but it is a little bit of soothing for such a hard thing to be doing. Yeah. Their afterlife provides other purpose. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really nice way of putting it. When you say change has been slow, can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, Project Safe Flight, I don't remember exactly when it was started, but it it was at least 20 years ago. So volunteers have been doing this for decades. Legislation was just passed for bird-friendly glass. So local law 15, but it's taken decades for it to pass. And we still don't have any lights out legislation. Just one bill was passed this last year for city buildings, but doesn't apply to any commercial buildings or residential buildings. And the buildings just they don't really seem to care. There's a lot of data showing how bad the buildings are. And just, I feel like in the last year or two, there's been more and more attention and awareness. And they're starting to have some conversations now with conservation organizations, which is great. But <laughs> like, if I knew my house was killing birds, I would do whatever I could the first time I found out about it. So it's, it's frustrating. Yeah. Do you have any guesses or clues as to the sort of glacial response of some of these glass buildings? It's just apathy or if it's just depravity or if it's just bureaucracy. I think a lot of the glass can be mitigated without a lot of effort. I do think that one of the big problems is there is an aesthetic factor. Although something like the frit or a pattern isn't super visible to the human eye, the main windows that are causing the problems are like the big lobbies of the big kind of vanity buildings. And mm -hmm. I imagine that there is deep resistance to that from aesthetic perception. But I mean, I personally don't think 
having to walk over dead birds is a good look either. So um, (laughs) yes, definitely something hard to step over, right? Yeah. I want to go back to a term you used earlier. You said being nature deprived in the city. Can you expand on that? I suppose, how were you feeling deprived? What were you looking for? That's a good question. I don't get out of the city very often. I don't have a car, so I'm not driving upstate on weekends. I travel some, but not a lot. I go to California to see my family a couple of times a year, my big nature doses. But, you know, we have our, our green spaces and our parks, which are super helpful, but there's none of that kind of sublime feeling of just being surrounded by song and smells and you know, rustling leaves and no sirens. And I think it's hard on the psyche to be without nature. And so to kind of hone in on these kind of micro nature, you know, whether it's just like Mm. a tree in your backyard, we do have a small garden in our backyard that backs up to other gardens. So I do get to look at some trees, but just being able to kind of interact with whatever nature we do have here, I think is very, very valuable. The sort of sensory experiences that you called out, the song of nature without hearing the noise produced by people, the sort of smells of being, at least in this climate, like a forest. There are so many other things that overwhelm those natural smells and sounds. Even though we're visual creatures, we forget that you know, we sort of have many senses. And even if we're not paying attention to them, they're sort of a part of how we're interacting with our environment. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that the city is a very, very dynamic kind of sense scape. You know, there's so much going on. I'm always paying attention to it. And I think it's wonderful in its own way. It kind of has a very different effect on the psyche than kind of the sense scape you have in nature. I mean, I think this city is amazing, but it's hard. (laughs) It's hard on the senses. I don't want you to call out any specific buildings, but I'm curious if you could just describe for folks the route that you use for your project safe flight work. So the, the program has, I'm not sure how many routes this season. I think it's five or six and three of them are downtown in the financial district. and we're assigned one route a day. So there's one volunteer who will do this route, et cetera. So my routes vary from day to day, but they are in the financial district. Uh, One of them has just two buildings. One of them is a really big building that has a a big footprint with a lot of windows. So that one takes some time. Another has five buildings. Another has six buildings. The main one I was doing last fall, which a lot of my Twitter was based on, was kind of the central one in downtown around the World Trade Center without naming any buildings in particular. So yeah, down there, there's a big green park, which is amazing. There's wonderful green space down there, but there's also a lot of glass. So it's kind of a not great combination. I'm curious what your encounters were like with, for example, staff who were there at the times when you were doing your monitoring work. You get to know the guards, especially because they see you every morning. We have the same schedules and they're so nice. And most of them are allies. They 
will tell you if they've seen birds, they'll point out birds, they'll tell you what's going on. They know what we're doing. They, they see birds dying all morning during migration. So for a lot of them, it's not something they enjoy. So they know what we're doing uh, and they're helpful. I really haven't had any problems with any guards. They've been great. And the porters and anybody else who's sweeping or cleaning, they're all very friendly. There are some sweepers who will put injured birds in a planter, a certain planter. And I feel like everybody's pretty like into the birds and helpful. Yeah. I had an experience. It was before 2020. I don't remember the year, but I was at a building West Houston or maybe East Houston. And one of the staff at the building told the friend I was with about the fact that the building he works in, he has observed or he had observed a lot of bird collisions with the the glass frontage and, you know, spoke about having to, to clean up the birds and how that made him feel and was then also able to point out to us locations in the front of the building where we could look for birds. That was one of the first times I think I saw an oven bird. There was one sort of skulking below some of the shrubs in front of the building. It was a very kind of bittersweet engagement. And this individual, as you say, I would put him in the camp of Ally. So it's nice to hear that you're having similar experiences. Yeah, I can't imagine that the emotional toll for somebody who has to sweep up dead birds is, I'm sure it takes a toll. It can't be fun. So switching a little bit towards a happier (laughs) topic, I'm curious about favorite birds and if you have one or more than one or it's too hard to decide. I mean, that is a really, really hard question. I'd say I really, really love the cardinals and robins that I hear at my house. They're in the trees in our backyard. It's just so beautiful to be able to hear them sing. So kind of in a, in a broad scale, I really like my, my local year-round birds. In terms of the migratory birds that I encounter, I'm really obsessed with kinglets. Ruby-crowned kinglets, gold-crowned kinglets, they are absolutely amazing they're so tiny they're like three inches long at best they weigh a quarter of an ounce and they're really feisty and really energetic and they're so cute and they're just amazing they fly thousands of miles i I don't even understand they're just amazing so i think kinglets like if i were going to get a bird tattoo it would probably be a kinglet so i think that says a lot but i also (laughs) really 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 love the northern flickers because they're just so absolutely beautiful they're just to me they're just exquisite and they mate for life so of course there's always you know narrative there too yeah so for your kinglet tattoo would you show the um (laughs) crown feathers flared or would you keep that a secret i keep that a secret Okay. <laughs> For folks who are listening who might not be familiar with the Northern Flicker, um, can you describe the features of this bird? Yeah, it's a it's a large woodpecker. I think about eleven or twelve inches long, and um, they're I think they're the only woodpecker that migrates. Um, and they they do fly during the day, which is interesting. Most of the songbirds migrate at night, 
And they're just a beautiful, beautiful patterns and markings that kind of go from this kind of fawn gray brown. They have these brilliant yellow on their feathers. They have heart shaped polka dots all over their chest. They have patches of bright red. The male has like a mustache. Um, they're just exquisitely patterned and the color the color combination is just very, very pretty. And it's shocking to see what's in New York City. Um, they seem very out of place. Yeah, they seem quite tropical because of all this sort of flair. Yes, exactly. And they're so big, too. Yeah. And for me, even now that I know about them, because I have in my mind woodpecker and tree trunk, Whenever I see them on the ground, I have to remind myself, oh, this is okay because this is what flickers do. Right, right. Good point. So do you have a favorite place in New York City where you like to go to watch birds live out their lives? Well, I have gone to Central Park sometimes after a particularly bad week. It's nice to just go there and see birds that are a bad week doing collision monitoring. It's good to see the birds there that have somehow avoided downtown and are doing what they should be doing, which is feeding and flitting about. Uh, so Central Park is nice. And then really my backyard is really lovely. We do get some migrants here, not a lot, but we do. And it's just nice to even be with the, with the local crew. Do you have a place in mind if you were to travel solely to seabirds? Anywhere, really. It would be amazing to go anywhere on a bird-specific trip. But I think the first place on my list would probably be to Texas, to maybe like High Island or one of these Texas hotspots that are kind of like the portal from the Gulf, you know, the birds that are traveling across the Gulf up through like the Central Flyway. Apparently, there's just so many warblers and so many songbirds and so many birds in this very concentrated area. And um, I think it would just be really nice to see them there and not in the city. <laughs> Although I think that if and when I do that, it might be a little depressing because it's in spring is the time to go. And I'd have to worry about them getting back to Canada. <laughs> like, okay, just avoid Chicago. <laughs> Don't go east. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, once they've made it through one migration south and they can get back up, I think they have a good step up. They've navigated it once. They have a little better luck with subsequent migrations. So I think that would be pretty great, Texas. Texas. Well, hopefully you'll have a writing assignment there and so you can pair the two. Yeah, that would be amazing. My final question for you is asking about, because you have such an intimate knowledge of how birds move through the city and the problems that they encounter, especially as it has to do with architecture, if you could talk about a vision that you have for birds and urban design. You know, I think it's really interesting. So birds have these like really incredible existential threats with climate change and habitat destruction, which, you know, those are not going to be solved overnight. Those are really, really big, hard issues. But cats 
and glass are much easier to fix. And those are more day-to-day threats. They're not kind of the bigger picture threats, but really, really lethal day-to-day threats. You know, we're not going to knock down the city, obviously, and just plant a bunch of trees. We need to be able to work with the birds. And we can turn the lights off during migration. It would make a huge, huge, huge difference. It's not the only problem, but it would definitely reduce the problem immensely. And it's easy. You just turn the lights off. (laughs) It's really easy and it saves energy. And then retrofitting glass in New York City right now, all new construction needs to have bird-friendly glass, as I mentioned earlier. And existing glass can be retrofitted below 70 feet. It doesn't have to be changed. I mean, it can be, but it can just be treated. And I think that I definitely can see a two-pronged approach with reducing light pollution and treating windows on problematic buildings. It seems like an easy fix. It would save a lot of birds. And I think that if we could get in the mindset of kind of working with birds, being a good host, I mean, they've been flying on the Atlantic Flyway for millennia. And we came and built all this glass and electric illuminated buildings seems like we should be kind of better better friends for them, better hosts. And I don't think it's that hard to do. So I feel hopeful and positive that we can get there. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're hopeful given some of the despair that you see <laughs> during migration season. And I actually do have one more question for you. And this will be the final one. Could you tell us how birding has affected your life, how it's influenced, impacted, changed your life? Well, so my birding is, you know, not normal people's birding. (laughs) It's hard to say. It's had a really big impact. I've become really, really driven for a single cause. I've mostly been kind of a multi-cause person. It's become a single cause that I've become really passionate about. I've learned how to wake up really early and get a lot done before my normal workday starts. And I have a bird freezer now, which I didn't have before. So mm-hmm. there you go. Emotionally, I will say it has added a whole new emotional level to my psyche. But again, I feel like it's given me a new sense of determination and uh, eagerness to advocate for change. So in that way, I think it's been really positive. Well, Melissa, I do hope that we as New Yorkers can be in better relationship with birds who, as you say, have been using our part of the world as a flyway for millennia and that we can be better about sharing this landscape. Yes. Amen to that. Thank you so much, Melissa, for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I love to talk about birds. Large urban centers can be wonderful places to encounter nature. From LA to New York City, Melissa Breyer has experienced urban wildlife throughout her life. She is tremendously aware of threats to wildlife in cities, especially to migratory birds and the possibility of window strikes during migration. 
She passionately works with Project Safe Flight to help birds, educate the public about how too many birds die needlessly in cities every year, to collect data about bird window strikes, and to move governmental agencies towards change, which Melissa describes as happening far too slowly. While changing existing city architecture is a huge task, Melissa reminds us that there are also simple ways to help migratory birds in cities, such as turning off lights at night and keeping cats indoors. Project Safe Flight is a volunteer project and anyone can participate. Learn more about Project Safe Flight and how to help migratory birds at https colon slash slash New York City Audubon dot org and follow Melissa Breyer on Twitter at M E L I S S A B R E Y E R to see the work she does to help urban birds in New York City. Tune in on July 14th for the next episode of Your Bird Story and the final episode in season two.